Looking back at some of the other honors, there's the We Met Caddy Scholarship Fund. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of that. Uh, that Caddy Fund was organized in 1949, and uh, it has been a source of great satisfaction to me. There's no story that could ever be told that is richer or sweeter than the story of Francis and Eddie. And may your lives be full of birdies and eagles. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Legacy, the We Met Fun podcast. On today's episode, we welcome on Sue Curtin, who will be receiving the 2023 Richard F. Connolly Jr. Award for Distinguished Service at the We Met Annual Banquet honoring Ernie Els. This award is presented annually to someone who has performed years of outstanding support for the We Met Fund and furthers the We Met mission with their efforts. Growing up in California, Sue and her siblings worked at the kitchen table helping their parents, her father, J.D. Power, and her mother, Julie Power, grow and expand their small family business, which provided independent consumer reports. That company, J.D. Power & Associates, didn't remain a small family business for long. A standout golfer on junior circuits from a young age, Sue put the clubs away competitively as she chose to attend college across the country at Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. At the same time, she enlisted in the United States Coast Guard Reserve, where she served for four years as a port security specialist. Sue carries on that legacy dedication today, leading a campaign for the future National Coast Guard Museum. In addition to running a private family foundation and business, Sue has dedicated countless time to serving on several boards, including the We Met Fund, the Executive Committee for Mass Golf, and as a trustee of the College of the Holy Cross. A founding member of Boston Golf Club, Sue helped launch the John D. Minnick Memorial Foundation and the subsequent Minnick Endowed Scholarship at the We Met Fund in honor of her dear friend and mentor, the late John Minnick. The Minnick Endowed Scholarship is one of the largest endowments within the We Met program and has had an enormous impact on need-based scholarships for young men and women each year. A constant advocate for We Met programs and the game of golf, the Massachusetts golf community is fortunate to have Sue in it. We are your hosts, Thomas Murphy and Colin McGuire, and we hope you enjoy our conversation with Sue. Thanks for listening. Went down there for the International Four Ball, which is an event I usually play in with Chelsea, my good friend Chelsea. She's at that stage in her life where she's, you know, working, running a business and wasn't able to join me. So I asked a friend of mine who I met through Allison Walsh. Her name's Megan Greenhan, and she plays Westchester area, but she basically grew up like going to medalist in the winter. She's a member there and owns Cottage One. And so we stayed there for the whole week, played medalist twice. Eddie Carboni's the new GM there. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know yeah. that. And oh, great. So I had breakfast with him like every morning, which is awesome. We played in the tournament. So that was practice round two days. That was down in Wellington. And then I got to play Pine Tree and then medalist again and then die preserve on my way out. So it was a good week. Really good week. That's the most golf I've played in forever. I was, I think, Colin, you might know, I had long COVID all of last season. And so really struggled. And this was like the first time I felt like I was back. My body was feeling well enough and playing seven days straight was amazing. That's amazing. I had a little bit of a different, I played one 18 hole round and it was at Blissful Meadows <laughs> oh, here <geez>. in Massachusetts. Slightly <laughs> <laughs> different, but it was great to get out and walk. That's a nice thing. I love Blissful. The place is great. I love that course. I love the history in the clubhouse there and everything. And actually, I'm going to South Carolina next week for my golf trip. So I'm, ex- I'm the season's here. The Bliss family's amazing that owns that place. So I did a lot of work with them. The story is incredible. My buddy and I, we love going there. We're so excited to talk to you today. We're going to cover a lot of topics. And many people listening will know you as somewhat of a local golf legend, local golf amateur legend for sure. And you put your name on a lot of trophies. But what we're wondering is, 
where did that story start? What is your first memory of the game of golf? And how were you introduced to this game you're so passionate about? I grew up in Southern California, about an hour north of Los Angeles, just inland from Malibu. And that was a Westlake village. When my parents moved there, it was a small little town with didn't even have a grocery store and their growing family. They needed a bigger house and kept moving further away from downtown LA. And I was tomboy, played every sport growing up the way we used to do it, where you'd get out of school and you everybody would meet in the park and whatever the game of the day was. And so I was used to playing all these different sports and got very into softball. My sister and I were very good softball players and played on a travel team. And my dad had received some complimentary passes to an LPGA event that was in Calabasas, California, which is 10 minutes from where we lived. And he decided to take my sister and I, and I was about eight years old and 1978. And he took us there on a Saturday and we walked around and I was blown away because it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen women playing a professional sport, spectators watching them, getting paid to play and at this very high level. I just remember the impression it made on me at such a young age. I'd never seen anything like it before. And I begged my dad to take me back the next day. So he took me back on Sunday and we walked around, did the whole thing. And that was Nancy Lopez's rookie year. You think of all the great LPJ legends. And I just remember being sort of mesmerized by the whole thing. And I didn't come from a golfing family. My parents didn't play. Their sport was work. And it was just not a game that they were ever oriented to. My dad had a set of clubs and occasionally mustered it together if he got invited for a business reason. But I begged for three years for golf clubs. And finally, when I was like 11, my uncle had purchased me a three wood and a seven iron from Kmart. And that was my Christmas present. And I ran across the street Christmas morning, because in California, you can do that, and started whacking balls in the park across the street. And it was from then on, I just fell in love with the game. My parents were great about getting me access to golf. I grew up playing mostly public golf courses and fell in love with the game there. I first started playing in a junior program over at Westlake Golf Course, which is now become famous with George Gankis, the instructor, teaching Matthew Wolf out of there and Pepperdine practices out of there at the driving range. I started there when it was just this yeah, little- Many years before, young Sue Curtin was there yeah, first, right. right before George Gankis. <laughs> it was this great little public executive course, par 67, probably not even 5,000 yards and a lot of hard pan and bad bunkers. It was a great place to learn the game. And I was the only girl in the junior program, which I remember distinctly. I wasn't necessarily embraced by all the guys at first, but stuck it out. And my parents just always made sure I had access to play the game from that early age. And so I went on to play in high school and I wasn't very good. I was probably a hundred pounds soaking wet and really had to go through a growing experience on my high school team, which I was playing against some really, really good, good players. I was first girl in our high school's history to play on the golf team. My dad had encouraged me to give it a try. It was I had to make a big decision because softball and golf were the same season. So you're really doing this all on your own. Like you're trying to recruit buddies and friends to join you or you said, you know what, I'm just going to do this. I mean, I was really kind of a loner when it came to my golf. And it wasn't until I joined the high school golf team that I had begun to be around other golfers that were 
a lot better than me. And they were all guys and relentless, which was good. And I joined the golf team. And like I said, I wasn't very good. And these guys were a lot bigger and a lot stronger. Back then, we played the same set of tees. So if I wanted to play on the boys team, I played back on the big boy tees at the time. And I remember every par four was driver three wood wedge or driver three wood nine or eight iron, depending on the hole. And that forced me into developing a really good short game. My high school team was incredible. I played with Charlie Wee was on my team who he's went on to have a pretty decent professional career. Chris Zambri, who was the head coach at USC, played the mini tours. He got recruited, played at USC. Jimmy Chang, who was Tiger's roommate at Stanford, was a teammate of mine. I was amongst some really great golfers and that opened my eyes up to, okay, I got to start playing in tournaments. My father had challenged me a bit or encouraged me to think about giving golf a try in high school. Softball and golf were the same season where I grew up and I had to make the decision which sport I was going to play. And he said, listen, you know, you're good at softball. You know, you're gonna make the team, you know, you can be successful at that, but you don't know what you can do in golf. And he's like, why don't you give it a try? And if it doesn't work out for you, you can always go back to softball. And I'm really so happy he pushed me in that direction, or at least we had that conversation because I did choose golf and it ended up being one of the best decisions of my life. And it's interesting you say that, Sue. No, I've heard you speak about your father in the past and about his risk-taking. And you just pointed that out in that story alone. He knew you were good at softball. He said, why don't you try this other sport that you don't know where it's going to take you? I think that's pretty amazing. That's something that maybe he instilled in you as well. I know that that was a, certainly a part of him growing up through the Coast Guard into his career. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely the fabric of the values in our family was the risk-taking piece was embedded into the family business, the family fabric that the only way you can really challenge yourself and achieve things that you didn't think you could achieve was by taking risk. And so that was a very natural part of our family upbringing. My parents always believe that if you don't try and if you don't take the risk in doing something, you're really going to not know your potential. And But you can always fall back on what your past experiences and things that you know you're competent at. And so I'm very grateful that I had parents that, especially in, you think of today's climate where people tend to be a little less risk averse. I think that was very forward thinking of my parents, but I chose golf and I was the very first girl to play on our high school team in the history of the school. Interesting fact, Danielle Kang played for my high school. Oh, wow. Oh. Much later (laughs) than me, but I've met her a few times and got to tell her that I opened that door for her. (laughs) But stepping into high school golf there in Southern California, I was thrown amongst some really talented players and guys I played with on the team. And I mentioned this earlier, but you played the same set of tees and I was just thrown right into it. And I realized I had to really step my game up if I wanted to compete. And guys I that were on my team that I played with all went on to have pretty spectacular golf success. Chris Zambri was recruited to play at USC. He played on the mini tours and was the USC head coach, men's coach for quite a long time. He's now helping out at Pepperdine and working for Decade Golf. Charlie Wee, who had a pretty successful pro career, had come into our school as like a sophomore when I was on the team. Jerry Chang, who was Tiger's roommate at Stanford, was on my team. Wow. The list goes on and on. And 
You had a heck of a team. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. And I, like I said, I was not very good when I showed up freshman year. And it was just being around my teammates that opened my eyes up to like, oh gosh, I got to start playing some tournament golf. Like I didn't even know, again, my parents just, it wasn't a world they were exposed to. So you're figuring it out on your own. Figure it out on my own. I remember everything was paper and I write to the Southern California PGA section and try and get the junior list and sign up for tournaments and had no idea what I was like walking into. And my mom would drive me down to like downtown LA, Griffith Park, other golf courses down there and literally would drop me off and come back five hours later and I'd be sitting on the curb in the parking lot waiting for her to pick me up. And all these other young women I was playing against, the parents were following them around and they've got the entourage and everything. Were they aware of how good you were becoming? Were they aware of that? Or was with the business and with three other siblings, was it sort of just something Sue was also doing? Yeah, it was something Sue was also doing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think they knew I loved to practice. And back to my high school team, we would race out of school and go up to North Ranch Country Club, which is where we practiced. And we play nine holes after school or 18 and then right to either the driving range or the putting green. And we would sit there till the sun went down doing up and down contests, putting contests. And that definitely is where I learned my grit. These guys were relentless. They didn't care if I was a girl or not. And you had to earn everything. So that was a really, really awesome experience to have. I didn't really have a lot of tournament experience through my high school years just because it wasn't something that I really understood. And my parents didn't really understand. And that's not a criticism. It's just, it is what it was. And I do remember junior year, I ended up getting most improved player on the team. And that was like the biggest highlight for me for my high school career was that I had finally sort of, the game started really coming into shape. And then that led to, ended up leading to me looking at schools to play golf and not having a ton of tournament reps. I was kind of known. I finished seventh in the state championship in the girls individual California state tournament. That's no joke in a state like California. And actually that year, our team, I wasn't in the starting five for that, but the team won the championship and Phil Mickelson won the individual title. So it was pretty wild. (laughs) So I started writing letters to golf programs, really kind of having no idea what I was doing. A few would call and talk to the coaches. And first thing they'd ask is, what's your tournament record? And then I'd have to talk to my coach and kind of explain my situation. And Weird twist of fate. This is kind of a funny story because it's the only reason I made it out back to the East Coast where my dad's roots are from is that I ended up playing at Brigham Young University and the coach there, he'd come down to watch me play. He felt like I was something that was, he saw me on this trajectory of my game was only getting better and took a chance on me and they offered me a scholarship and I went and played at BYU my freshman year and not getting into too many details. It was a phenomenal experience. I love my coach. Probably one of the best coaches I've ever played for. But being a good Catholic, I didn't make a very good Mormon. And we'll just say that my time at BYU was limited. I just spent my freshman year there and started to look elsewhere. And that's how I ended up transferring out to Holy Cross, where my dad and grandfather went to school. That's how I made it to Worcester. So you had mentioned your year at BYU. And then, as you mentioned, going to Holy Cross, your father was from Holy Cross. He's born and raised there. What made you decide to go across the country to attend what was a small Jesuit college? I ask only because you know, I attended a Jesuit school that I loved and nearly my whole family attended Jesuit schools. And 
that Jesuit ideology and that liberal arts ideology was something we were kind of raised around? Was that something you heard your father and your parents speak about often? Maybe was that a catalyst in your decision to attend Holy Cross or were there other factors at play? A couple things to go down that route is my grandparents, when I was younger, were still living in Worcester in the house that my great-grandfather built that my dad grew up in. We would travel every few years to come out and visit them in Worcester. And there's nothing like staying in the attic level of a two-family in the middle of August with no air conditioning in Worcester, Massachusetts. Surprised I did come back. And I'm distinctly remembering visiting Worcester and understanding our family roots there and Holy Cross always being the topic of conversation. When my grandparents started getting older, my dad moved them to Southern California to be near us. They were just getting older and needed a little easier lifestyle. So my dad moved them out to California to be nearby. And so every Sunday dinner was at Nana's condo and she would cook her same beef stew and angel food cake every Sunday. And the conversation around the dinner table was literally all about Holy Cross. Anything you needed to know about Holy Cross and how great Holy Cross was. So those impressions were made on me on a regular basis. And coming out of high school, it's like I thought I was so focused on, I'm going to play college golf. And after that year at BYU, I, you know, 30,000 undergraduates. My freshman classes were 800 students being taught by graduate assistants and was not the greatest fit for my learning style and what I wanted out of school. I made the decision then. I was also dealing with some health issues that cropped up later that I was battling, but didn't quite know what was going on. And so I ended up stopped playing golf. Holy Cross didn't have a women's team at the time. It's funny how when I got to Holy Cross, I mean, I ended up meeting my husband there and he was captain on the golf team. And there's a very funny story about how we met, but I went there and I knew that I wasn't going to play golf. People don't realize that out of all college sports, when you play college golf at a D1 level, even at D3 level, you're out of the classroom more than any other sport. And that's a tough thing to balance while you're trying to manage your academic work. I had made the decision when I transferred to Holy Cross that I was not going to play golf. I also was didn't understand how people played golf in March in the Northeast. That was <laughs> They go down south too, right? <laughs> I figured it out now. Now you know. <laughs> I actually have gotten a lot tougher too. I can handle the cold now. In the beginning, I wasn't so tough. And... I came to Holy Cross and another great decision in my life because I was like, wow, these are more my people than Southern California and fell in love with it. Academically, it was much more rigorous and really had to adjust to the demands of that, but I was ready for the challenge and I really cherished my time at Holy Cross. You might have given up the rigorous schedule of a golf season or multiple seasons, but your schedule was still pretty booked because you made the decision to add in the Coast Guard element to your time at Holy Cross. I think I was like, geez, I'm not playing golf. What am I going to do? <laughs> Got a list of the Coast Guard. Yeah. So if I didn't grow up hearing stories about Holy Cross, I grew up hearing stories about my dad's time in the Coast Guard. I literally was like, I wanted to have a car when I was at school. So if I wanted to have a car, I had to pay for it. And I was thinking of all these different options. And I also was kind of looking now that golf was over and golf was so much a part of my life as I've described. And I was like, what am I going to do? And I drove myself down to the recruiter in downtown Boston and I ended up enlisting in the Coast Guard in this really cool program they had at the time that I did all my active duty during my summers while I was getting my undergrad degree and then I would go work in uh, the 
rain safety office in Boston one weekend a month and then during long breaks. And so I got to Holy Cross. I finished my first year there and then I get shipped off to boot camp in June of 1991 and spent the summer at boot camp. And then the following summer, I went to my A school and then was working out of Base Boston on the weekends. So really great experience. And those who know you know how proud you are of your time serving the Coast Guard office. As you mentioned, your father also served in the Coast Guard. We'll chat a little bit more about now your work with the Coast Guard Museum. But was it entirely from your family's history that desire to enlist in the Coast Guard? Was it an individual decision that you did on your own? Is it something you discussed with your family a lot beforehand? I told my mom what I was doing. For people that don't know the military world, my dad graduated from Holy Cross. He went in through officer candidate school, got his commission right away, and served on a polar icebreaker for four years. Did some amazing things in his experience. And I went in, enlisted, with the intention to possibly go to officer candidate school after I graduated from college, which I ended up not doing. Going in enlisted was like, you were shipped off to boot camp with other young people. And it's definitely a harder, grittier way to go. And so I had not told my dad what my plan was, but I told my mom. And when I told my dad, he was pretty upset with me. And he was like, do you have any idea what you just did? (laughs) He's like, do you understand the difference between having a commission and going enlisted? And I was like, I know what I'm doing. I'm like, just because you didn't do it doesn't mean I can't. And that experience for me was I showed up at boot camp. 21 years old or 20 years old. And so just a little bit older on average than most of the people there. But it was a very humbling experience in the sense that here I was thinking extra income, my next adventure, I'm an athlete, this is going to be fun. And I'd always felt a call to serve, not necessarily in the military, but like I'm back to the Jesuit values that are ingrained in you at a place like Holy Cross. I always really felt that I really wanted to serve in some capacity. So that was definitely a motivator. But when I showed up at boot camp, talk about humbling. Here I am in my situation, which is a very good situation. And I have all these great plans ahead of me in my life. And then I realized the person to the left of me and the person to the right of me, my shipmates, they're all there for very different reasons. I mean, I had a very good friend who was escaping domestic violence. And this was kind of her ticket out to freedom. Some of the guys I was with had gotten themselves in trouble with the law, and this was their way of repentance and finding another track in their lives to do better. And so uh, socioeconomically, people were in a much different situation than I was. And that was a very stark and eye-opening experience for the young me. The way boot camp goes is the lesson that you walk away from in those eight weeks is it doesn't matter how good you are personally and individually, if the person to the left of you, the person to the right of you is struggling, it's my responsibility to help them be successful. And I think that's something that I think only going through that experience would I have had that opportunity to learn those values. Clearly the pride being in the Coast Guard with your dad and you and the lessons that you've learned. And you've spoken to me about how, you know, you think about the branches of the military, how several years ago you said, like, there's no museum to educate, to inspire, to recognize the sacrifice. Now you are the chair of the National Coast Guard Museum. And besides it being long overdue, what really drove you to becoming so involved in leading this effort to create that National Museum? We stumbled upon the National Coast Guard Museum as a project, I think back in like, I'm not sure I'm going to get the date right, but it was like 2014. 
the U.S. Navy Memorial had reached out to my dad and wanted to honor him. They do an annual event called the Lone Sailor Award. And what they do is they honor an individual from each seagoing service, so Navy, Marines, and Coast Guard. And it's a pretty prestigious award that what they do is they try and highlight people who have served and then gone on to do other great things in their lives. And Arnold Palmer was actually recipient of the Lone Sailor Award. I think a couple of years right before my dad, they reached out and wanted to honor my father. And so my sister and my oldest brother and I went to the celebration event with him at the time, the Commandant of the Coast Guard. And it was really funny because the Coast Guard was really embarrassed. They just were like, we had no idea that J.D. Power served in the Coast Guard. And it took the Navy for them to realize it. So that's sort of a running joke and leads us into this conversation around the Coast Guard not. They need some help in fundraising and constituent relations. Yeah, and, and visibility <laughs> and an understanding of who they are and what they do. And so the Commandant at that time had mentioned, we've got this project going. It's We've been trying to get the National Museum off the ground. It was actually put into law in 2000 that the Coast Guard was to build a, a national museum. And for way too long, I could do a whole podcast on the Coast Guard and the National Museum, but so I'll spare you all the super gritty details. But we ended up on the outskirts getting involved at, from that point. But I was asked to come on the board a little later. And it was around 2017, 2018 that I really jumped into the project and fully and ended up becoming the chair of the board for the campaign end of it. And happy to report that after having to build a whole new team and write the ship, no pun intended, <laughs> we just broke ground on the project down in downtown New London. And we're so excited that the Coast Guard is gonna finally have a national museum and it'll no longer be the service without one. It's really gonna serve as a platform for the Coast Guard to finally tell its story and tell it in a big way and let the world know how important the service is on a daily basis to all our lives. So um, we're super, super excited about it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I actually mentioned to my family, we live in Old Saybrook, so we're right down the connected shore as well. Oh, yes. Okay. We'll be making our way over there as well awesome. to check out the great work. And you sort of mentioned that you could do a whole podcast about the Coast Guard, and we have a lot of questions about that and other things, but you did do a whole podcast about the Coast Guard with the They Had to Go Out podcast. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about Sue's work with the Coast Guard and her time in the Coast Guard, that's a great episode to check out. But I was curious, you mentioned your father a number of times. To this point, we haven't maybe introduced for some people who may not know that your father was J.D. Power, famously of J.D. Power and Associates. We know the company grew into a massive consumer reporting powerhouse in the auto industry and otherwise. Many of us still hear that name on our TVs every night when we're watching commercials. But many people may not know that it actually started in your family's house at the kitchen table with all of you helping to work. If you can, can you take us back to those very early days when you and your siblings and your parents were literally working together, creating what became J.D. Power and Associates? What are some of your earliest memories of the business? Dial back to mid to late 60s. I wasn't born yet. I'm the youngest of four siblings. And my parents had moved out to California. After the Coast Guard, my dad was able to used his GI Bill to pay for an MBA and went and got his MBA and ended up getting a job in Detroit working for Ford Tractor in their finance division and went around the Midwest auditing tractor dealerships for Ford. And he had always been attracted to market research. It was sort of his love and passion. And he'd worked in various positions after Ford. 
for advertising agencies and doing conducting marketing research. And he took a job transfer out to LA with my mom. They had started the family. They were living in downtown LA and then it started making the sprawl out to Calabasas and eventually Westlake where they headquartered the business. And he was extremely frustrated by the fact that at the time, the way market research was done, you were sort of beholden to your client like advertising agencies do where Chrysler would hire their ad agency and do their market research with one firm and same with General Motors or whatever consumer products and services. That was the same model. And what he found was that he would go to all these great lengths of doing this market research. And by the time the research and data had reached the CEO's desk of the client, the information had been completely tortured. Basically, like trying to please the client. We don't want to necessarily tell them really bad news. We want to keep them as a client. Keep the accounts. Yeah, right, and that's exactly. not great for the consumer. That's terrible for the consumer. And that's exactly the frustration of my father. And so every night he would come home and he would complain to my mother, who's taking care of, at that time, three kids in diapers, three kids under four, and they were just starting out as a young family, really didn't have any money and mortgage on the house. And my dad went and talked to some classmates of him from his MBA program. He had heard they had just started their own company when they were, it was very cutting edge. They were taking satellite readings of utilities and starting to show some really great success. And my dad met with them and their advice to them, which is kind of a theme of what we were talking about earlier, is that, you know, you're employable, you know, you can go get a job. You can always give this a try. And if it doesn't work, you can just go back to what you were doing. So back to that risk-taking conversation we had earlier. And so came back, he and my mom talked over it. They slept on it. And like the next day, my dad woke up and said, let's do this. And he quit his job. They ended up taking a second mortgage out on the house. So think about this in that period of time. That's and, a huge risk. Yeah. <laughs> and you think about that period of advertising, you think of like Mad Men and back to that era, right? And people thought he was crazy. They couldn't understand what he was doing. They literally took out a second mortgage on the house. They hunkered down and my dad just started trying to acquire clients. The firm he left kept him on on like a consulting basis. So he had a little bit of income coming in while he was trying to do this. And the short version of the story is he had heard about this Japanese automaker that had failed to bring their vehicles into the US market previously, but they were trying again. And so he drove down to Torrance, California and walked his way on their campus and walked into the front door. He's a nobody at this point. And talked to the receptionist and tried to secure a meeting and was very swiftly shut down. So he walked out of the building, looked around the campus and he saw a warehouse, walked into the warehouse and it was full of forklifts. He finds the manager and talks to the manager. Turns out this guy was in charge of forklifts for the US market for this company. And he said to the gentleman, what do you know about the forklift industry in the US? And surprisingly, the answer was, I really don't know a lot about it. And so my dad offered, I can come back to you with a complete study on the forklift industry in the US if you're interested. And he said, sure, like I'll give it a try. And my dad didn't even know at that point what he was gonna charge. So like, they kind of had a weird negotiation and he <laughs> was like $600. My dad offered to do it. He came back a few weeks later, full study, complete analysis of the forklift industry in the US. The gentleman is like intrigued, he loves it. It's, the best information he's seen. He walked my dad in to the main office, secured him a meeting and it ended up being Toyota. He got a meeting with Mr. Toyota, who was the son of the founder of Toyota. And 
they became one of my dad's lifelong clients. That really launched the family business into a new arena. And you asked about what that looked like for us as a young family. And my earliest memories were being lined up in the living room of our house. And my mother had us all staged in different sections and we each had a job. And one person had to tape the quarters on the questionnaires. And the next person had to stuff the envelope. The next person had to put the address label on the envelope and then put them in the trays to be go through postage and get mailed out. And the business started right at the kitchen table. My mom would get us all to bed at night and then would stay up late coding questionnaires on graph paper because everything was manual back then. And that led to a lot of discoveries that she had realized that one of the studies they were doing, she said to my dad one night, she's like, Masa has an O-ring problem. And my dad's like, what is that? She's like, I have no idea, but <laughs> everybody's saying it. <laughs> it keeps coming up in the survey that these O-rings are failing. And that was another big break for the company that got him on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and led to a whole host of recognition. And But it was really his building the business on the integrity of the research and the integrity of the data and developing a pathway so that consumers actually had the voice in the market research. It's a deeply trusted brand. Absolutely. To this day. We're pretty, yeah. And it came from five or six family members. And I know I've read it grew dozens and then hundreds of employees that felt like a family, all friends. It's you know obviously a testament to loyalty. And you're in the Coast Guard. You've said before, you have to earn the trust of the people around you. And I think that that kind of grows. I do want to make sure we have time because I'm thinking about another part of your life, Sue, that sounds somewhat similar, where it's more than just a club. Boston Golf and what was born out of John Minnick and the relationships there, it's more than just a club and it's a family. And I just want to hear about that special place for folks who might not know as much about Boston Golf and John Minnick. After working in corporate America for a while out of college and deciding not to pursue getting a commission in the Coast Guard, I started volunteering at MGA, now known as, as Mass Golf, and was fortunate enough to get hired in there as their first director of member services. And that is where I met John Minnick, who was serving on the executive committee of Mass Golf. And there was three of us at Mass Golf MGA at the time. It was a very small organization. There was Kevin Patterson, who was the director of rules and competition. There was myself. And then there was Derek Bro, who, with John Minnick, was helping develop the junior program, which is now the first tee of Massachusetts. And so John who had just sold his business. He was an incredible person. He grew up as a caddy at Sandwich Club and started caddying as a very young person, like a very young caddy. And it was there. He grew up in Byram and worked as a caddy at Sandwich. And that was really where he found his mentors and his people that really guided him into college. And the We Met story that we all know so well. And so John had become a very successful software tech entrepreneur. He went around actually in the late 80s or early 90s with billing software. And he went around the country and was automating physicians' offices with billing software. You think about the timing of that. That's where his company did really well. He worked very hard, as most of these successful entrepreneurs do, and ended up selling the business. And once he sold the business, he started to chase his dream. And that was to build a world-class golf club sort of modeled after the great clubs of the 
golden era of golf course architecture and the turn of the century. I was at Mass Golf and John started taking us on these golf trips. It was really John who, having not grown up in a golf pedigree myself, it was John who had introduced me to really the traditions of the game. It was pretty special. So what us being naive and just thinking, oh, we're going on these great golf trips, isn't this fun? What we didn't realize is John was actually going around and doing his scouting, his research, and he was gathering all this information on what he wanted when he was going to build his premier Boston Golf Club. And those early, early days, we had to watch him secure the site, find the site, going through hiring an architect. That's a whole other story how he ended up with Gil Hands and and Gil separate was, episode. Yep, separate episode. Sure. <laughs> and so just being witness to him taking this dream he's had ever since he was a little kid and watching him turn it into this just spectacular club on the South Shore of Boston and one that is very tied to the traditions of the game. I'm very proud of the fact that I think we have one of the largest caddy programs in the state. We have numerous. We met scholars and we're going to continue to make sure that we churn more We Met Scholars out over the years. Many people probably know that we sadly lost John, you know, in 2007, shortly after the club opened. Legacy living on strong with the foundation. Yeah. And so we started a foundation. Rob Ketterson and Chris McCowan were a big part of making that happen right after John's death. That first year after John passed away, we raised over a million dollars to seed the foundation, which is just incredible. Since then, we've grown it. The amount of lives and programs we've been able to touch in John's memory and keep that legacy going has just been incredible. The We Met Scholarship, the endowment that we created in his honor. I want to keep building on that. I want it to be one of the highest valued endowments that We Met has. And so we're going to keep working on that. But it's been a great way to keep John's memory alive, but carry on what his vision was for golf and his work he did for First Tee and just the fact that he was a caddy and it was that experience that led to his success and being able to do this work for him is quite an honor. You're one of the many people carrying on the torch, but I mean, your involvement in the game, the Golf Course Owners Association, Mass Golf, Boards of We Met, Golf Fights Cancer, Executive Committee of Mass Golf, and the We Met Fund, you and Mike, your advocacy for young golf workers, the caddy programs, generosity, in just a couple of weeks, I know there'll be a whole crew from your competitive circles, your Boston golf circles, family cheering you on as you receive the Dick Conley Award in front of 1,300 people at the Encore. And quickly, if you could just say what it means to you to receive the Dick Conley Award as a fellow crusader as well. Mr. Conley had left me a voicemail. It wasn't available when he first called and I got a voicemail from him. And my first reaction was, did I do something wrong? Like, am I in trouble? Like, <laughs> trouble sometimes follows me. So I was like, that was my first reaction. Dick usually just says, just call me back. So you don't know the context. Well, exactly. So I was like, did I do something? And, but of course, when I called him back and he told me about the award, I was floored. I couldn't believe it and extremely flattered. And my husband sometimes says, he's like, you don't take compliments very well. So I'm trying very hard to sit with it and celebrate it. And for me, this award is much more about John Minnick than it is me. And so I'm looking forward to being able to honor him at the dinner. And the other cool connection is 
when you sent me the information on the award and I looked at past recipients and my name was sitting right next to Arnold Palmer and that whole full circle where Mr. Palmer's daughter, Amy, really stepped up huge for us with the Coast Guard Museum because Arnold Palmer was also in the Coast Guard. And just that full circle where where Amy came forward and has made a really nice contribution to the museum to honor her father and the marriage of that with me honoring my father and having Mr. Connolly with the Holy Cross connection and his legacy and his mentorship as a whole for what he's done for We Met. It's, I don't know, it's just this really kind of full circle all intertwined in many ways. And I'm just super excited. I get to at least have the opportunity to tell a little bit more about John Minnick that. Your work has been so important for the Med Fund and Dick Connolly was thrilled to have you be the Connolly Award recipient. He's really, really excited about that. And few people love golf as much as Dick Connolly, especially love Massachusetts golf as much as him. But you make an argument to be up there and, and you know, having interned at the what was the former Women's Golf Association of Massachusetts now back in 2016. Obviously, now they've merged with Mass Golf, but I was the USGA intern there. And I was certainly aware of your success in those events that were going on, both in state tournaments, regional events, et cetera. If you can, what are some of the tournament wins or even losses that kind of stick out to you over the years that you're either most proud of or that still stick with you that you wish you could have back? I think I said it earlier, you know, I really consider myself to be like a rookie. I really do. There was a big span of time where I didn't get to play golf or didn't get to play really competitively from the time I left college golf to having my kids. My oldest son was very medically complex, just had a lot of needs, even all the way through elementary school, high school. And so golf really took a back burner. And it wasn't really until around 2016, that was my second USGA event I ever tried for and made it to US four ball with Pam Kwong. And that lit a fire under me. I turned 52 years ago. So like, I feel like I'm the, honestly, like this rookie in this whole competitive scene. Like, I feel like I'm still like showing up to the first tee, like trying to figure it out. And I've definitely had some wins along the way that I really in this space is where my head's at right now. I feel like I'm just learning and I like, I haven't like really peaked at all. Like, I feel like I'm still like 60% of where I need to be. And I'm always looking ahead. The other golfers in Massachusetts have to watch out if that's true, especially when it comes to the mother-son call. And I I think that could be trouble if that's true. (laughs) I did start playing in the state mother-son with my son, James, my youngest son, James, when he was the first year he was eligible when he was eight years old. We've been playing in it ever since. And that is by far the most stressful 18-hole tournament of my life every year, and we've had a lot of success. I think we've set some records, and this past year was like unbelievable that we won the overall co-champions with the Frodies in the overall. The cool thing is, is as I get older, James is only getting better, and he's getting bigger and stronger, so each year he's definitely contributing more, so I can ride his coattails going into the future, which is good. This conversation, we've twisted and turned into so many fun topics, whether there's wind and wave analogies in there taking us (laughs) everywhere, who knows, but thanks for just letting us get a little bit more insight into your history, your family, and your passions. It's going to be fun being with you on April 3rd again, but thanks so much for being with us today. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Appreciate the opportunity. Appreciate so much of what We Met does. You know, I get to see firsthand the products you guys produce by creating these opportunities for young people to fulfill their dreams. And that's the marriage of that with the golf experience is 
quite the story to be told. The need is always greater. The need always continues and it always seems like the need gets even bigger and bigger. So I think we're all motivated to keep the trajectory going high. Thanks for, for being so involved with that. Thank you guys for what you do. Thank you, Sue. Really appreciate it.